All right, well, we are moving through a sermon series where we're looking at the, the book of Romans. We're traveling through this amazing New Testament uh, letter that Paul wrote to this young church in Rome, a church made up of both Jews and Gentiles. We know that Paul longed to be with these people someday to share the gospel, but for now his letter will have to suffice. And and we saw early in chapter 1, we got a little glimpse of this gospel, but then midway through chapter 1, Paul starts declaring some bad news. It's, for us, four weeks of bad news. Uh, good news is we're halfway through, and by the end of the day, we'll, we'll be uh, 75% of the way through. But, um, you know, we've, we must acknowledge that if there is good news, it must address some sort of bad news. And Paul takes so much time uh, and critical care to address the bad news. Why? Because um, without an understanding of the bad news, we will not know how glorifying and good the good news is. And so... Um, today, Paul addresses a reality that's been present with the people of God ever since God has gathered in a people unto himself to call his own. And, and what is that? Well, there are people who claim to be God's people, but who aren't. They boast of having the law or their Bibles on their side. They boast in things like circumcision and baptism And yet they're blind to their own reality. Their hearts are hard and impenitent towards God. They focus on the externals, whereas God focuses on the heart. So, as we begin to read Romans chapter 2, verse 17, consider these two questions. Do you consider yourself part of the people of God? And if so, what do you point to as the basis for this claim. Romans 2, beginning in verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve of what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we 
come before this text with questions and concerns and a, a need to hear afresh from you. We, we ask that your spirit would pour out into this room that we would fully understand that our, if we have hard and impenitent hearts, that, that they would be changed, even in this very hour. Uh, we want to hear from you. Uh, fill us with your presence. Amen. I don't know about you, but, you know, I read this text and, uh, you know, kind of scratch your head, you know, Jew and Gentile and law and circumcision and uncircumcision. I mean, it's kind of like, what does this really have to do with anything, you know? How, you know, how is the church today to appropriate these words of Paul? <laughs> well, let me do this. Let me reread what Paul just wrote. But let me insert a few different words. See if you follow along. But if you call yourself a Christian and rely on the Bible and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the Bible and if you are sure that you yourself are supposed to hit everybody over the head with your Bible and you point out all that is wrong with those around you and you consider yourself an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of the godless, and believing that you are the embodiment of all the Bible has to say. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you not have idols too? You who boast in the Bible dishonor God by misusing the Bible. For as it is written, God is actually mocked through the world because of you. For yes, your baptism is indeed of value if you obey the Bible, but if you break the Bible's commands, your baptism becomes unbaptism. So if a man who is unbaptized keeps the precepts of the Bible, will he not be, will not his unbaptism be regarded as baptism? Then he who is physically unbaptized but keeps the Bible's commands will condemn you who have the written code and baptism, but break the Bible's commands. For no one is a Christian who is merely one outwardly, nor is baptism outward and physical. But a Christian is one inwardly, and his baptism is a matter of the heart. By the spirit, not the letter, this man, the true Christian, receives his praise not from man, but from God. Makes a little more sense that way, doesn't it? The Bible is replete with examples that tell us that God doesn't look at the outside of a person. God looks inside. What is the state of his or her heart? Is it alive in love for God or is it alive in love for self? In our passage, Paul addresses an age-old problem of with people, uh, the people of God. There's a, there can be a, an outward adornment without any inner beauty. The tendency in Paul's day and the tendency in our day is to replace genuine love for God with outward appearance. The Bible has harsh words for people who claim to be a part of God's people, but yet are really just dressing up for the part. Jesus calls them Whitewashed tombs. Hypocrites. Comes from the Greek. It means to be a play actor. 
The moralistic Jew that Paul is addressing looks not to investigate whether he has a heart for God, but he simply points to the outward marks that belong to the people of God, like the law and and circumcision. Two very important gifts from God, but not proof that you truly belong to God. Your proof that you belong to God is a heart that belongs to him. The gospel says, God gives you that heart. That which you and I desperately need most, that which we cannot manufacture on our own, God gives to his people. So we truly can love God and love neighbor and desire God and desire to walk in his ways. That's good news, isn't it? This morning we'll focus on Paul's argument that outward marks of the people of God mean nothing without the inward mark of God's grace. We'll divide our passage into three areas. We're going to look first at the people of God and the law of God. Then we're going to look at the people of God and the sign of God's people. And then we're going to look at the people of God and the heart of God's people. Might sound confusing, but trust me, I hope it won't be. First, the people of God and the law of God. And the big idea here is this, that knowing the law never trumps knowing the lawgiver. Sounds obvious, but we need to understand it. Now, remember, Paul is addressing an imaginary Jew. That's what he's been doing in in chapter 2. He's using a rhetorical device called diatribe, where he's arguing against an imaginary person. He wants us to watch in what he's doing. He wants us to draw the proper conclusions. Paul begins with a conditional clause. But if you call yourself a Jew. Now, some people think Christianity is anti-Semitic. People think that Christians have it out for Jews. This is simply not the case. At least it shouldn't be the case. Um, Jesus was a Jew, of course. Paul was a Jew. Paul was a Pharisee, one of the greatest of all Jews. All of the first Christians who received the gospel were Jews. Christians are not a separate people of God from the Old Testament Jewish people. No, we are rather branches of the tree trunk of Judaism. Does that make sense? I know some Christians think otherwise. God has two separate things in store for the people of God, the Jew and the Christian, but that's not the case. Paul calls them Jews. Why? Because... At the time of Jesus, at the time of Paul, that's what they were called. There was a time when God's people were sent into exile, and they were referred, the Israelites were referred as, to, as those people from Judah. Judah was one of the 12 tribes, and within Judah, the region was Jerusalem. Uh, they were like one of the last 12 tribes standing, you know. And so they were called Jews from Judah. It's a, short, it's a shortening of the word Judah. Judah means to praise Now back to what Paul is saying. In the first two verses, Paul is highlighting the privilege of being a Jew over and against being a Gentile. And there are some privileges. The first is that they are Jews. This is a privilege of all the people on the earth. God chose Abraham, not because Abraham was some good, great guy. Abraham was worshiping pagan gods. But God said, I'm coming alive to you. I'm going to place a new heart in you. I'm going to cause you to look up. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm calling you to go to this land, uh, and, I'm, and I'm promising you that, that through you, through your offspring, 
this whole entire world will be blessed. Through your loins there will be a people who come about to be a mighty nation. And my intention is to bring my gospel, my good news, to the Gentiles through you. So it's good to be a Jew. It's a privilege. And with that privilege also comes the privilege of the law. The law of God is good. But bear in mind, it was given over 400 years after God called Abraham to walk in faith. The law is good, though. The law of God is the written code that opens up the mysteries of heaven. The law codifies uh, how we are to live as people here on earth. In a world full of deception and darkness, uh, God's law is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And Jesus said he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So the law of God, the, the word of God, scripture, the Bible, it's a good thing. It's a gift from God. It's a special privilege to have it. So there's privileges afforded to the people of God. They are God's people. God has given him his scripture. And they are, people are able, the Jews were able to sit under the instruction of the law. These were privileges to be delighted in. Because you see, that, that Jewish man that Paul is arguing against would have said, but Paul, you're leveling the playing field between Jew and Gentile. There's no advantage for me having the law because God's going to judge the secrets of my heart. But, so is there no benefit, right? That's what he would be saying. Is there no benefit to being Jewish? And Paul's saying, yes, there is. You've got great privileges. But then he goes on to say, but these privileges have become pridefulness for you. We see that in verses 19 through 24. And if you are sure that you yourselves are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness, that's what they were called to be, and an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, then you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach and against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. It's calling him hypocrites. For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now, the key word that unlocks this whole passage right here is the word sure. Do you see it there in verse 19? And if you are sure, you are a guide to the blind. Many in Jesus' day and in Paul's day were sure of themselves. They held up their Bibles and they pressed law after law and rule after rule upon the people of God. And uh, well, they didn't even go and talk to the Samaritans. Uh, who wants to be a law? Who wants to be a light into those people? The Pharisees, from whom Paul was, is a, they're a perfect example of this. They prided themselves in just how well they knew the law. And they took the law of God and they created all kinds of other rules around the law. And they would, they would heap these rules upon the, the people of God and said, if you do not do these things, you're not really God's people. They had rules for rules. They were so sure of themselves. They were sure that they were the ones who were to teach others on God's behalf. The problem is, if you know God's law, but do not know God's grace, you become a person of the law. 
cold and harsh and restricting and judgmental and condemning. You will teach from a sense of superiority over others. You will be a hypocrite, and the world will see. And when you say to the world, hey, we have God's law, the world will say, ah, if this is what the law produces, I don't want your God. That's the point that Paul's making in verses 19 through 24. You pridefully think that the law was given to you so you could force it down other people's throats. Paul's saying, you hypocrites, force it down your own throat first. You who steal, I mean, you who say not to steal, do you steal? You who uh, say don't commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You, you, know, you who hate idols, do you not rob temples? Now, Paul's not saying that each and every Jew in his day uh, did these things, um, but this is what was commonplace, and as a whole, that's what the, the Jewish nation could be accused of at that time. Paul is saying that when you cling to your Bibles, but do not do what it says, the world looks upon you and it blasphemes God. God is despised by the very ones he wants us to reach. We saw an example of this recently. I'm sure you're familiar with the circumstances surrounding Kim Davis, uh, the Kentucky court clerk who would not issue uh, same-sex marriage licenses. Um, we're not even going to get into all that. I'm going to point out, though, that the argument was pretty much lost at the very beginning. You saw it on the news channels. What did they do? Well, here's an example. Here's a report that I pulled, one of many. As was reported this week, Kim Davis has been married four times. Davis divorced her first husband after committing adultery with her third husband and becoming pregnant with twins. Her second husband adopted the children, but Davis eventually divorced him to marry the children's biological father. Davis has since divorced that man and and remarried her second husband. God is a very forgiving God. I'm sure he loves Kim Davis and, and she loves him. But the, the problem we run into as Christians is that, is that when we hold law, law, law in front of this world and yet do not live it out, people rightly call us hypocrites. We lose the right to speak into their lives. The situation in Kentucky is an example of what Paul is describing. People with the Bible... Uh, forcing it upon a secular society, all the while not even living up to what the Bible says. I'm not saying Christians shouldn't try to uh, influence our culture. We are. We're to be salt and light. But let us not lose our saltiness, and let's make sure we're proclaiming the light. I'm not saying we're not to support and propose and support uh, the biblical uh, understanding of marriage. We are. We're to stand on these truths. But the hurting world around us mocks us and our God when we smugly declare ourselves to be the harbingers of truth and then hypocritically shove the law down people's throats. Brennan Manning put it this way, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, then walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. 
My friends, the law of God cannot save anyone. America's problems is not going to be solved by more laws. What America needs is is new hearts (laughs) that beat for Christ. The law is not meant to save anyone. No, it's meant to point us to our need of a savior. It's meant to cause us to cry out uh, to God from help above. The the law is meant to lead us to grace. Remember last week, uh, God's kindness is meant to lead towards repentance. And so when we hear God's law, what we should properly do is simultaneously say this. One, that's wonderful. And two, boy, I'm in trouble. We need to preach it first to ourselves, to our own hearts, before we even begin to speak to others. A heart that beats for God simultaneously affirms the goodness of God's law and its need for God's grace. How so? Let's take an example right from our text. A heart that beats to God says amen to the commandment that says not to commit adultery, that marriage is for life between a man and a woman uh, till death do us part. Let no man take that and tear that apart, right? And yet that same heart that beats for God also knows the lusts that remain within. We do, don't we? Jesus said that even if you look lustfully at a woman, and we can convert it the other way, women, even if you look lustfully at a man, you have committed adultery in your heart. Jesus elevates our understanding of the law to such a level that there isn't a single human being over the age of a certain age uh, who hasn't experienced this in their own heart. And so a heart that is alive to God simultaneously recognizes that the law is good and that the law also convicts us and reminds us of our ongoing need of God's grace in our lives. The proper effect of the law upon the heart of the believer is that the heart comes alive to God. And it's not a heart that has a sense of superiority over others. No, the work of God in his children is to create in us a humility. A humility that is contagious. A humility that the world looks upon and says, I don't get it, but I want to know. And so because of this, we are to shun hypocrisy in our lives. And we're going to return to the cross and receive an ongoing forgiveness from our Savior. That's the law of God and the people of God. Now, for the sign of God's people. The big idea here in the next section is, um, you know, having the external sign of membership never trumps heartfelt obedience. Why does Paul mention (laughs) circumcision here? Um, because circumcision is a very important part of the Old Testament people of God. Circumcision was the right, R-I-T-E, that God gave to 
Abraham, the father of the Jews. It was a mark upon his body, kind of like a tattoo that, that set Abraham and all of his household and all that were born into his household, the entire nation of God's people, set them off as, uh, set them apart as God's people. God made promises to Abraham, which Abraham received by faith. First came faith, then came circumcision. He promised Abraham that he would send a Messiah who, who would come and clean up this tragic world and, and that he would, he would lead us into a world of righteousness, peace, and justice, and love. A new world filled with the glory of God. And guess what? Abraham believed that. And God credited to him his righteousness. He appropriates the righteousness of Christ before Christ was even born, and he appropriates it by faith not by circumcision or the law. Abraham lived a life of allegiance to God. His heart was captivated by God and his promises. And as the father of this nation, his faithful, heartfelt devotion to God was a model to the nation to come, to all of the offspring. The nation was given a sign of circumcision, to remind them that they were a nation that was set apart as God's people. But circumcision is no substitute for a faithful heart. See, the true son of Abraham must have the same God-filled heart of Abraham. Otherwise, his circumcision is null and void. That's Paul's point in this passage. When I used to race motorcycles uh, on race day, a couple hours before the race, you had to go through what's called tech inspection. And you wheeled your race bike over, and there was a group of officials, and they would look your bike over, up and down. They would uh, look under the hood, so to speak. They were looking for a couple things. One, they wanted to make sure your bike was safe, and they also wanted to make sure it wasn't illegal, right? Because <laughs> people did all kinds of things to cheat the system to make their bikes go Faster. Now, once they were satisfied that your motorcycle passed tech inspection, they would take a sticker and they would put it on your windshield, down far enough so it wouldn't block your view when you're going 150 down the straightaway. Put a little sticker down there, and that said you had been inspected, that your bike was okay. It was an outward sign that everything was all right with your motorcycle. It was safe to race. Now the problem was nothing stopped the racer from wheeling the bike back to the pits and changing things under the hood, right? Because see, when you wheeled it out onto the starting grid, they, they just looked to make sure you had the sticker. Uh, they had no idea what maybe you had done underneath. They trusted the outward sign that your motorcycle was safe and legal. Paul is telling us that there are people who consider themselves to have passed the inspection, because they've received an outward sticker of circumcision or baptism. And because they have the mark on the outside, it doesn't matter what takes place under the hood. Paul tells his imaginary Jewish opponent that circumcision indeed is of value. In Christian, your baptism is of value. How can it not be? God gave it as a sign to his beloved people. God even said concerning circumcision, he said, if any of my people do not take the sign of circumcision, you are to cut them off from the people of God. Do you see that? 
The sign of circumcision is a cutting off of the foreskin. And and if you will not take that sign of being cut off upon yourself, you are to be literally cut off from your people. God gave circumcision to his people. It's something there to delight in. But circumcision does not exempt one from living a heart-filled life for God, a God-honoring life in which we pursue the law out of gratitude for what God has done for us. 25b, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. (laughs) Having circumcision or baptism on the outside uh, does not excuse one uh, from God looking under the hood. Remember, last week we read that God judges what? The secret thoughts of men. By Jesus Christ. Verse 26 and 27, Paul says that if a Gentile who isn't circumcised lives out the law of God, then it is really as if he was circumcised, even though he isn't. Paul's saying that he's going to end up judging you because you broke the law. Now, once again, as we talked about last week, is, is... Paul's saying that there's a way to be saved by by doing the law, by doing all the right things. Remember, he's he's making a hypothetical argument to this Jewish man. His his point isn't to say that uh, Gentiles can be saved apart from Jesus. His point is to say, you know, the the, the playing field is level. Uh, Your circumcision means nothing. His uncircumcision means nothing apart from the law. His point is that, that... just to show that the Jews, that circumcision is really only an advantage if you obey all the law all the time. And of course, there's no Jew or no Gentile who's ever able to say they have. Today, the sign of God's covenant people is changed from circumcision to baptism. Circumcision was a bloody sign that pointed to the bloody cross of the Messiah, the Savior of God's people. Now the people of God have a new sign. It's a sign that points to the finished work of Christ. It's that we've been washed clean by Christ. Water baptism points to this reality. And yet even this outward sign done in the past can become a badge with no inward reality. There are many people who profess uh, that they're Christians because of, you know, Maybe grandma, grandpa is buried out back of the church, you know. Well, we always just kind of, we were Lutheran, but then I think we became Presbyterian. I don't know. My mom used to pray a lot, you know. So, and I guess, you know, Christianity is what it is, you know. And I was baptized, so um, I got the tech inspection sticker. Paul rejects such thinking. The outward sign must be accompanied by the inward reality of faith. You know, there's a hymn that we sing from time to time. I'm sure most of you know it. If you don't, you don't have hymnals, so you're out of luck. But I'm going to read it to you anyway. But it's Rock of Ages. You know know how that starts? Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. When it says Jesus, the rock was cleft for me? What does that mean? You guys just sing over that without really paying much attention? 
cleft means to be. Cut off. Separated. Rejected. Despised. Jesus Christ was cut off. He was circumcised from the land of the living. He was cut off from the human race. He was cut off for our sin. So that we may be brought back in. You know, we cannot sing verses 2 and 3 of Rock of Ages unless verse 1 is true. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from that wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Verse 2. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's commands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. We get from the cutoff of circumcision in the first verse, and by the time we get to the end we get the washing of baptism. That's who Christ is for us. He bridges from Jew to to Christian. He was cut off for his people so that we may be brought in. The sign of baptism isn't an empty sign. It's important. If you've been baptized, that's a good thing. But it's only a true thing for you if the inward baptism has taken place. Let's turn to that. The people of God and the heart of God's people. Here we are to see that God gives us what we desperately need. We need new hearts. Hearts which beat for him. You know, the problem with humanity that Paul has been addressing, we've seen it unfold in the second half of chapter 1 and in chapter 2. It isn't a head problem. It's not an intellectual thing. It's a heart thing. In chapter 1, we saw the irreligious, self-indulgent man. He didn't have an intellectual problem. He had a, a heart problem. Paul wrote that his, heart was, uh, his foolish heart was darkened. See, he, need, he knows deep down that God exists. All of nature proclaims that God exists, and yet he suppresses the truth. Why does he suppress the truth? Because there's not enough truth? No. Because he will not allow the truth, take him to where the truth takes him. You see, if people allow the truth of God to run its proper course, then God would have to be the center of our lives. And the last thing that a rebellious, dark heart wants is God upon the throne. That's what we see in chapter 1 with the irreligious man. But then Paul also challenges the religious moralist. The religious moralist of chapter 2, his heart isn't described as dark, right? How is it described? Last week we saw it. The, the heart is hard and impenitent. 
Such a person doesn't deny the existence of God. He just denies his need for forgiveness and mercy from God. He doesn't need the cross. That's for other people. By golly, I don't need it. Look. So Paul's point, the reason why he's laying this firm foundation of the brokenness of all humanity is so that we're all on a level playing field. We all have a hard problem. It's either dark or it's hard and impenitent. No one, no one, no one until they're given a new heart has any other option. That's what Paul is telling us. So all humanity has a heart problem. That's what he wants us to see, including the religious Jews. What are we to do? Paul says we're to long for that which only God can give. That's a, a new heart. Now, we've got to wait till further on in Romans, but he's going to unfold before us. Remember, Romans is about, what is it about? It's about newness of life that God gives us in Jesus Christ. And this newness of life is not our work. It's a work of the Spirit in God's people. That's what we see in verses 28 and 29. Look at that. For For no one is a Jew or a Christian who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision or baptism outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Paul here makes uh, three antitheses, right? He's saying a Jew or a Christian is a Jew, uh, but not one outwardly, but inwardly. The second thing he says is a Jew is not one by the flesh, but in the heart. And then he says a Jew is not one by the written code, the law, but rather by the spirit. Now, Paul's words might totally come out of left field to us. But if you were that Jew that Paul is addressing, you were talking to him, he would go, I've heard all of this before. It's all interlaced throughout the whole Old Testament. He this an Old Testament person. You, you, number you here know your Old Testament, so you would know when God evaluates a person, He looks at their heart. God chose King David over all of His brothers. His brothers looked a lot more like they would be really good kings, right? Handsome, tall, strong. Here's this little shepherd boy. God chooses him. Why? Because David has a heart after God. That's why He chose him. See, it's not the outward fake appearances that receive God's loving approval. It's what's inside. And what's inside, if it's just our own heart that we conjure up, it's not good. We need God to give us a heart. That's what God's problem is, is that he addresses our heart problem. And people in the Old Testament had one big heart problem after another. If you know the story, God was always calling them stiff-necked, hard-hearted people. Repeatedly, he said these words, right? circumcise your heart. (laughs) I'm concerned that that your outward appearances are fake. You've forsaken your God who loves you. Circumcise your hearts. And here's the beauty of the gospel. That which we desperately need, God gives us. We need new hearts. The good news is that God gives you a new heart. What good is God's law if even on our best day we're reluctant? We need new hearts. Once again, the Old Testament has given us images and promises of this. I want to read one to you. It comes from Ezekiel 36. You may know it. It's kind of long. But I want you to see the people are in exile. God has every right to send them into exile, but he does not stop loving them. He has promises for them. He knows what his people need, and he will give it to them. 
Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares the Lord God. When through you, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land of your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. That's the promise of a new heart. If you're here today and you're still wondering, why would I give my life to Christ? Why would I, why would I even begin to uh, embrace what we're talking about here? Well, read that passage. This is who God is. He's gracious and forgiving. Though his own people have disparaged his name throughout the world, he can, lavishes his love on his people and gives them exactly what they need. God vindicates his own name through his own people by giving his people the heart they don't have, but which they desperately need, and a new spirit put in them. My friends, that day has come in Christ. It is here. That's why Paul is able to say, all who are in Christ are a new creation. Jesus told Nicodemus, the, the Pharisee, he said, Nicodemus, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven unless you have a new birth. He's like a new birth, born again, second time, that's impossible. No, no, I'm talking about a spiritual birth. The spirit blows wherever he wishes, but when he blows, he gives life. My friends, we have no control over where God sends his spirit, but he does. If you're here today and you trust in Christ, it's because God has done a work in you. He has poured out his spirit upon you. He has given you a new heart. He has caused you to think godly thoughts after him. It's his work in you. Wow. What a gospel. You see, a stony heart looks at the cross and says, I don't feel anything. But a heart that God gives his people looks at the cross with wonder and joy and delight. If you're in Christ, this reality is yours. It changes us. It makes us all, it turns us all into Jews. What did he just say? What did Mark just say? Was I sleeping? Shoot. Back up. TiVo that, right? Did you ever wish you could like TiVo life? Like, oh shoot. I, uh, yeah, was, was that a cop or an ambulance? I don't, oh. All right. 
Um, glimpse into how my brain works. Uh, I went on a number of missions trips to, to Honduras. And in Honduras, my first trip down there, I was really struck with something. I met all these Christians from this church. But many of them, they weren't wearing crosses. They were wearing what? They were wearing the Star of David. <laughs> Why? It was explained to me is they're more biblical than I am. <laughs> because they saw that, that, that now with baptism, they've been engrafted into the age-old people of God. <laughs> we, we are Jews in a sense. If you are in Christ, you are a true Jew. Does that make sense? Is, so, and what, is, what does Judah mean? What does Jew mean? It means praise. God works in his people with this new heart, a life of, of praise, of joy and delight. We become Jewish in that sense, right? How can we not? How can we not be people who praise and live for God's glory? Now, Maybe you're here this morning and every congregation about this size has people who are like, you know, I don't believe this stuff just yet. And perhaps the reason why you're saying, you know, this is just, I'm not going to embrace any of this. The reason why is because of Christians. (laughs) You've seen the hypocrisy in the church, right? You're like, why would I want to join that group? I totally get it. That's where I was. Before I came to faith in Christ, I was like, why would I want to be like those hypocrites? Always looking down their noses at other people. Well, let me give you this. Let Jesus worry about his people. Jesus is going to take care of everyone who calls upon his name. The Bible says that, that Jesus will, every human being will stand before Jesus someday. Christians too. And we have to give an account for every careless word, for every wrong deed we've done, or any right deed we didn't do. Every last one of them, Christians have to make an account to Jesus, the one who was cut off for us. That's sobering, Christians. It should challenge us in how we live our lives. We will give an account. So know this, Christians will need to give an account. So don't worry about the Christians in that sense, right? And yes, there are Christians who are hypocritical. There are Christians who push the law and demand all these different things and they tell us our answer to America This is the more religious laws in the country. No, America needs more hearts alive for Jesus. The living out of the law will take effect through that. But what I hope you see is this. And you're, you're blind to a reality. We often focus on the hypocrites. Meanwhile, for every hypocrite who's in the paper today, there are tens of millions of Christians who are alive with this new spirit life. They're alive with the the new heart that God has given them. And guess what? They are honoring God each and every day. They are doing things for his glory. Behind the scenes, you don't see them. You might just think they're just nice people doing nice things. No, they're, they're redeemed people who've been given a heart that now beats for God and cannot help but honor him. Every day, tens of millions of Christians, that's, that's what we're doing. And yes, we're hypocritical at times. I look at my own soul, I see my own soul, and I'm like, really? You preached that last week, and you're doing this this week, right? But don't let Christians be the reason why you don't come to Christ. Let Christ deal with his Christians. 
You need a Savior, come to Him. Trust in Him. There's also certainly people here who consider themselves Christians because, you know, great-grandma's buried out back at some church somewhere. I don't mean to treat this lightly, but that's, you know, there's, that's the sense, that there's this tradition, you know, where America is a Christian country, I'm just raised here, so that's my go-to, right? And, you know, I, I was baptized at some point. Or 20 years ago, I went to Billy Graham Crusade, and I walked down the aisle, and I filled out a card. So, you know, there's my tech inspection right there. I've done it, right? But in reality, there's really no heart transformation. There's perhaps a lot of, you know, affirming the Bible and using it to condemn other people or... Or maybe not that, but just maybe the sense that you're okay just because, well, you go to church, you throw a few bucks in the basket. Um, I hope what you see, it's a little harder to see because if you're, if, if you're a, like really immoral, you know you are, right? But if your heart is hard towards God, and, and uh, you're going to have a hard time seeing that you really need a Savior. I hope this morning you recognize that, that the outward signs, whatever they are, they're no good unless the inner reality of a transformed life given by God through faith in Jesus Christ comes into your life. And you need that. Not your neighbor, not not somebody else, but you, if that's you here this morning. You need to trust in Christ. Uh, You know, come to to the cross. You know, naked to the cross I clean, right? Nothing in my hands I bring. I got it backwards, but you know what I'm saying. Now, for the rest of us here, I think, you know, we're Christians, you know, cheer up, all right? Uh, you know, why the sad face? Uh, I think our tendency as Christians, though, even, even though by our nature we're new, is that, that we tend to look to the law, and we tend to, we tend to uh, figure out whether we're being good Christians or not based on how well we do things, like pray, read our Bibles, and, and, and it becomes external, Right? Meanwhile, we know deep down inside we're falling short, right? Uh, and we can impose on others that this is what a good Christian is. It's to show up on time and to, you know, sing loud or pray right or whatever it is. Um, you know, we need to go back to the cross. I mean, so this new heart life that we get from Jesus, when we look at the law, we also, we also um, you know, we, we come back to the cross and we're reminded of this great grace that, that, we, that we have in Christ. So we, we need to continually be reminded that our identity in God's presence isn't based on the externals, the things we do. And the people around us aren't to be judged by how well they measure up, right? Um, we are to be humble, not just in the presence of the world around us, but we're to be humble in the presence of God's people with a willingness to forgive others, with a willingness to, to not judge people by the externals, but rather a desire to, to see them as God sees them, dearly treasured and loved. Uh, he treats his children patiently. So too shall we. This is the kind of church God wants to build here. A church that is alive in Christ. That's our motto. A church that is filled with the spirit, that walks in the spirit of God, uh, that, 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 that loves the law and knows that it falls short and is dependent upon Christ, but also loves our neighbors well and really truly cares for our neighbors, gets involved in their lives, not so we can throw the Bible at them, rather so we can embrace them with the embrace that we've received from Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that our lives are new. Uh, In Christ Jesus, um, we are not uh, who we used to be. There is new life, although it might seem like it's just beginning to grow. Oh, that on some days it might feel like this life is threatened to be snuffed out. We know that you 
who began a good work in us will carry it on till the day of completion. As your people, we long for that day. Until that day, strengthen us by your spirit, we pray. Amen.